Hello and welcome to For What It's Earth podcast, the podcast that has a little look at all things nature, climate change, environment and sustainability and asks every week, is there anything that you and I can do to save the planet a little bit? My name's Emma and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined this episode by Emmy and Oscar award-winning filmmaker Eva Orner, who has just directed and produced a brilliant new documentary called Burning for Amazon Prime, which has a look at the particularly intense 2019 and 2020 bushfire season in Australia, which was also known as the Black Summer, where 59 million acres of Australia burned. So with that introduction, Eva, hello, welcome to For What It's Earth. How are you doing? Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. How are you doing today? So you're you're based in LA right now, aren't you? Yes, I'm in sunny LA. <laughs> I've been living, I'm Australian, but I've lived in America since 2004. Oh, what brought you over? Uh, you know, work. But it's interesting, the longer I'm here, it seems the more I want to make stories about Australia. So I've made two films about Australia in the last six years, which is kind of surprising to me. <laughs> oh, no, so I suppose that gives you a really good excuse to go back and spend a lot of time there and keeps you connected to a place that's very homely for you. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting because I think I think it's also in, the longer I'm away, the more I realise how great it is and how much potential it has. And when I see things going horribly wrong, I want to document them. <laughs> oh, well, I think that that might be the answer to one of my first questions, <laughs> which was why why did you produce Burning? But before before we get into it and talk a little bit about your documentary, I did give you a little forewarning. I have to ask you because we start all four episodes this way. Eva, what one good thing have you done for the planet this week? Oh my gosh. I don't want to sort of, you know, I, I don't know. That's so I guess I guess the best thing I can say is that the film is releasing on Friday, <laughs> the 26th of November. Yeah. And I just spent like the last year and a half making it. So and the whole point of making burning is to alert people to what's happening with climate change in Australia and globally and what we can do and mm. what what we need to do to prevent it. So I'd say that's probably, you know, the biggest thing this week. But on a day I mean, that's day, quite a good one. Yeah. yeah but that's a cop out because I didn't actually make the film this week. So I think you know on a day <laughs> on a day-to-day basis I'd say like not eating meat and driving an electric car. But oh. you know, um I feel like that's not close to enough of what we should all be doing. So there's a lot of work to be done. Well, it's really it's really hard to work out what it is that is enough, and I think actually one of the lines uh, towards the end of your film was that like we, we can't we can't do enough as individuals. Really, we do have to be a collective fight, and and everything that we do do is important, and that's kind of the premise of this podcast. We want to talk to people about climate and the environment and nature and all these problems that we're hearing. We want to make those problems accessible and understandable, and we want to give people tools where we can to feel like we're having some impact. But at the end of the day. It does have an impact, but not enough if we're not all clubbing together and if we're not all calling, you know, decision makers and stuff to make to make change. So I would still very much commend driving an electric car and, and eating less meat because <laughs> at the end of the day, we can't all change policy individually. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of my favourite parts of the film when Tim, Fla- Tim Flannery, the very renowned Australian climate scientist, says, look, you know, do what you can on an individual level. And I'm paraphrasing, mm. but he says, you know, sure get electric uh, get solar panels on your roof drive an electric car eat less meat do everything you can on an individual community and state level but what he does say and I think this is sort of one of the biggest themes in the film is we're past the tipping point you know we're missing Mm. all of the projected targets we're in diabolical trouble with climate change and the only thing that's really going to help us now is 
global government. And what yeah. we've just seen at COP, you know, in my opinion, sure, some things were achieved, but it was, as expected, quite a failure. Um, mm. Australia particularly, you know, is now lumped in with the villains in the climate change world, which is, you know, Russia, China, India and Brazil. And we need to have better governments globally. And so when people sort of say, you know, what do you want to achieve from this film? The number one thing is to inform people enough so that they realise they have to vote now with climate change as their number one reason to vote. It's, mm. it, it can no longer be the economy. There won't be an economy if we if we keep going on the trajectory that we're going on, and so the film's not alarmist, it's not terrifying. It's really it's been factual. It's described as like a call to arms, though. I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean it's factual, but it's it's really just trying to show people that you know we're out of time. Mm. Um, if we act as aggressively as we can now, you know, if governments act as aggressively as they, as we can, we're still facing unprecedented climate change, you know, increasing temperatures, fires, extreme weather for the next, you know, for the next, for the rest of the century, basically. Um, and then, you know, I guess in 30 to 50 years, if we go super as aggressive as we can, then things will sort of plateau and then things might start to reverse, mm. but we're not even close to that trajectory. So, you know, I don't like to say the film's alarmist. I like to say the film's factual and based on science. But you know, mm. we're part we're past the point of no return, and people should be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, to me, the fact that we keep voting in governments globally that aren't putting climate change as their number one issue is just astonishing to me. I I completely agree. And I I the one thing I actually really liked about Burning, which struck me from the very beginning, was um how closely woven all of the climate science was into into absolutely everything because I, I was kind of expecting a documentary on the the wildfires but it, it was just as much if not more it was a documentary on climate change um and a lot of the time you come sometimes you see things like or you see news stories sometimes i mean there's plenty of issues with the news and we can talk about that as well at some point and misinformation but often you see news stories and the headlines will be x amount of australia is burning and then tucked away at the very bottom, there'll be a little note about, oh, you know, scientists think that they're getting worse because of climate change. And it's never like fully woven in. And what I really loved about Burning was it was like, you cannot untangle the experiences that we're having right now from the science of climate change. And therefore looking forward to try and stop these experiences happening. Uh, we cannot untangle climate change and climate science from that like future mitigation you know the plans, and and I, I that was just one thing that I really enjoyed about it. Yeah, I think that. Thank you, and I think that was very intentional from the beginning. I think there's been a lot of stories and films made about fires that have happened over the last years around the world. There's been a state of the mating in in America about the Californian fires. Mm. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of films and television in Australia about the fires of Black Summer. And I think there's room for all of them. I think they're all really important. But I do think that a lot of them, as you say, they kind of, it's like fire, fire, fire. And then sort of, you know, at the very end, it's kind of like <clears throat> climate change because because people, <laughs> people, people, I think people are, you know, a little bit scared of going too much into it. It's a, it's a, it's a hot topic. It's, it's controversial. It's hard to explain, you know, it's mm. polarizing. And so I think there is definitely a, a reluctance to head on right into it. But I felt you can't tell the story of the fires without climate change. And in fact, the stories of fire of the fires that happened are not stories of fires. They're stories about what's happening in Australia. And so mm. the film is not about the fires. The film is about climate change told through yeah. the fires. So I, that was a very intentional thing. And and also, you know, 
the other thing that's really interesting you mentioned is you know it's 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 definitely based on science and it's funny to me well it's not funny it's tragic to me that in our lifetime and probably only in the last decade or decade and a half you know when we grew up science was fact science was not disputed it was indisputable Mm. and now suddenly science is not considered necessarily fact and it is questioned all the time and to me that's the end of civilization that's the beginning of the dark ages when we don't when we don't listen to scientists we're in really big trouble and it's kind of like how did that happen and you know without distilling it into too basic a a source you know it's come through fake news and when you look at you know where fake news really started in the modern era I don't think you can go past Rupert Murdoch and his horrendous empire so we sort of go after them a bit in the film as well for all the all the lies and rubbish that they spread i mean that could be an entire documentary and i'm sure has been uh, of itself if you were to yeah yeah i'm not not a not a fan (laughs) (laughs) i i will happily sit in that camp with you i'm sure he doesn't listen to this and won't be offended no i'm saying this no but um well okay well listen we're getting we're getting way ahead let's let's start with the very very beginning what I mean, what was it about the Black Summer bushfires that really inspired you to think, listen, this is going to be my next project. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this film. I, I was actually home. Um, I went. I usually go home at Christmas to see family and friends, and so I flew in with my boyfriend to Australia in December 2019, and was there all through Christmas, New Year, New Year's Eve. You know, when it really was at a crescendo, um, through 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 into the first few weeks of January. So. You know, landing in it was pretty horrendous. You know, most people I knew were affected by it. People lost homes, watching the toll it was taking on the country, watching mm. the bad, the the really weak response from the federal government. But it kind of started before that because I was in LA and in August when the fires started, I remember seeing it on probably, I don't know, CNN here or something. And I remember mm. being like, oh, my God, the fires have started in August. It's not, it's winter. It's not even spring. This is going to be a horrendous fire season. This is sort of oh, unprecedented. Right. I thought, I thought yeah. that was... That was very unusual. So I had my eye on it. And then in October, I think was the first time Sydney was in smoke and we saw all those images of Sydney in smoke. And again, it was like, I haven't seen this before. You know, I lived in Australia for 34 years. What's going on here? And Mm. I was obviously aware that Australia has been really hit hard by climate change and it's sort of ground zero for climate change because of its vulnerability, you know, being so hot and dry and flat. But this was shocking to me. And there was one other event that really kind of knocked me out of my a comfort zone it was in I'm from Melbourne and I lived there for 34 years and on December 27 2019 it was 47 degrees Celsius in Melbourne and I Gosh, spent I can't I can't as a Brit I can't even wrap my right? head around what that might be but as a Melbourneian either can I it's like so what growing up in Melbourne you know for the first 34 years and I go back there every year I've been there a lot often in summer you know yeah. there's usually one there's usually one week in February at the end of summer when it's like a scorcher week and the temperatures are over 40 and the hottest I ever witnessed in my time living there was 44 degrees so anecdotally in my life yeah anecdotally in my lifetime the temperature's gone up in Melbourne like three degrees and it was a rarity but it's happened before and I was kind of standing around there's fires everywhere the wind's out of control the whole country's burning and everyone's like yeah it's really hot and I'm like no it's like Baghdad this is not normal like what is going on here and I'm not saying you know the science says the temperature's gone up like you know 1.1 degree and it's on track to go up to 1.5 degrees so we're not saying it's gone up three degrees in Australia across the board but anecdotally in my lifetime the temperatures increased in my hometown by three degrees and that's that 
that floored me. And then mm. I think the final thing was, you know, when we were flying home, uh, we'd been in Sydney for a week in the smoke again. Sydney was back completely covered in smoke from the fires. And mm. we got on the flight and we were coughing, our eyes were watering. It was it was so shocking to me. And so, by, you know, by the time we landed in LA, I was like, i got to do a film about this. This is not normal. Yeah. I mean, one, well, I have to, so something you touched on just there was um, about, you know, anecdotally for you, one of the reasons you've acknowledged climate change is because you can see a rise in summer temperatures from what you're used to. And I think that's really important when we talk, because I'm constantly wondering how do we how do we best talk about climate change to people in a way that's not just like, you know, you're, you're driving them into such fear that they can't, you know, call to action or anything like that. But um, so I think em- enveloping those stories of change, which feel very personal, is a really useful tool when it comes to trying to communicate that things are changing. And I think that that was kind of something that you used you use kind of personal elements and personal anecdotes quite a lot in the film. So there was, you know, stories about how um, people were recognising, like you said, that the seasons were changing and that things were particularly dry because flowers were flowering earlier or later. Um, and, you know, somebody described the ground as it was like concrete. And that's something that even I, who've never, I've never been to Australia and I've never lived in a, a, a climate or an environment where bushfires are a part of life and society but I could connect to that I could connect to the idea of the ground being completely beaten down and dry when it was described as concrete yeah Greg Mullins is really interesting in the film he's a career firefighter and he was also the um, fire commissioner of New South Wales which is one of the you know hottest driest states in the country that was particularly ravaged by the fires of Black Mm. Summer and he talks very anecdotally and personally about you know witnessing over you know over 50 years of being a firefighter and how he's seen conditions change he's seen temperatures change as you say he's seen the seasons extend I mean one of the really horrifying stories he told me that's not in the film is he used to and his team used to come to California quite often in Australia's winter and California's summer to help fight fires in California and then the California firefighters would reciprocate and come to Australia in you know winter here and in summer in Australia but they can't do that anymore because the fire seasons have extended so long that they overlap now and that was another example of real the real impact of climate change and he's he also talks about how you know pyroconvective storms there's a really frightening sequence in the film of these incredible storms that happen where the fires create their own weather and their own thunderstorms and then start more fires and the clouds look like nuclear explosions like the first time I saw them I thought they they were fake I thought they were fake I didn't believe them and he says in the film that they were sort of a legend among firefighters for decades because you bet he you know he said I think I saw one once in like 1975 and then he says I saw he saw like more than 10 of them in this last fire season in the black summer and so things have clearly changed and he's a really great inclusion in the film because he's got really hands-on experience on the ground as a firefighter but he's also worked in a political role as well as a as a fire commissioner for the state so I think you know he's 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 a very he's a very courageous person and he's been vilified by the Murdoch press has it well I I can't say I'm super surprised that no I I thought he was wonderful and and one of the other things I'd might him for was he was he was happy to be vulnerable and open and, you know, get upset on camera and, and to actually show the emotion attached to all of this entire topic of, of climate change and of loss and of devastation and of like just overwhelming, you know, what the hell do I do and how do I save people and the planet? And I, that really yeah. came across from him. I thought that he was he was brilliant. But the, the pyro, um, 
the pyroconvective storms blew my mind. Like we we've talked a little bit about wildfires before on the podcast, but I'd never seen anything like that. That was that that really shocked me. So was there anything that shocked you the most when you were kind of going into it? Maybe you didn't expect before you started doing the research and things. I mean, that was definitely something I didn't know much about. And again, as I said, when I first saw the footage, you know, we had to really verify it because I was like, there's no way this is real. It's so intense. It's really interesting. I think what you mentioned before was really a moment for me when when Greg kind of got emotional. He's, you know, if you know Australian men, particularly like a career firefighter, these guys are tough, they're laconic, they're not emotional, they've seen everything. And when he does sort of break down a little bit talking about some of the effects of what happened to him in the fire I think it's a really strong moment because he's not someone who does that he does a lot of press you know he's media trained he's media savvy and I think it really also took him by surprise and he also told me when he watched the trailer of the film for the first time it was not in a not in a bad way you know because he's very open to talking about this and it's his life work but he did say it was a little bit triggering for him sort of putting him back into the fires because he was fighting the fires during that summer and he's since seen the film a bunch of times you know he was at the Australian premiere at the Sydney Film Festival and introduced the film and he accepted an award that the film won. So I think it's been a really great oh, experience for him and I talk to him all the time. So, you know, he's, he's, he's pretty amazing. I'm just trying to think what else was really shocking. I, I think the scale of it, even though I knew the scale of it, looking through all the footage, you know, for months mm. and months and months, it just never sort of fails to shock you. I think I think that was pretty pretty shocking. I mean, the whole story is just appalling and sad and you know, but there is hope in the story, and it's. I think it's really important, particularly in a post-COVID world, when people are pretty traumatized. Mm. You know, you've got to show people a way forward, and that there is hope. And Mike Cannon Brooks is a really interesting inclusion in the film. He's yeah. um, he's one of Australia's younger um, billionaires. Um, he runs a company called Atlassian, and he's putting a lot of his wealth and a lot of his time into renewables and technology. And he says we have. We have the technology now to solve the problems of climate change. We can do it. It's just that governments aren't making that happen. And so private enterprise and individuals have to do it themselves. And so he's Mm. got this project called the Sun Cable, which is (laughs) him with a bunch of people. And I think it's a $20 billion project and it's going to be ready in less than a decade. Um, And they're building the world's largest solar farm, the world's largest battery and the world's largest underwater cable that will go from Australia to Singapore and it will power Singapore with Australia's um, Australia's solar. Um, and so there's, you know, there's a lot of that to focus on too, but I think it is important to jolt people into realising mm. that it's critical that we act now. Yeah. I, I actually really like that section with Mike, actually. I, what I liked the most was, so I find it so personally, when I talk to people like my grandparents about climate change, often their blanket answer is, well, what does it matter? You know, India, China, Australia are just going to continue to burn fossil fuels. That's not going to change. And if they didn't do that, what would they do? And I've never really had a good answer for that. But what I really liked was that Mike said, listen, being a fossil fuel exporter is really kind of central to Australia's not only economy, but like, but who we feel we are as a nation. So just trying to tell people that that needs to change isn't going to work because it's a very emotional subject. And the narrative that he's trying to, to kind of change is that you can still be an energy exporter, just the energy that you're exporting is going to be electricity that you're generating from solar because you are so well positioned to be generating solar energy. I think he said you could power the world five times over through Australia if you were using solar yeah. if you wanted, Yeah, which we're was this, mad. No, we're this massive, massive land, you know, it's almost as big as North America and we, yeah. we are one of, the, you know, one of the sunniest places on earth and we have this natural resource. 
What I love about Mike is he's really, I mean, he's clearly brilliant and incredibly mm. successful, but he breaks it down really simply and he's very approachable. You know, he's, for those people who haven't seen the film yet, you know, he's this, you know, youngish billionaire with a big bushy beard and he's always wearing a white t-shirt and a baseball Long cap. Hair, you know, he's baseball there. cap. Yeah. yeah, you could just go for a coffee with him. He he's, seems he's, super approachable. You're right. We just, did a, we just did an online panel the other night and he's exactly the same all the time and I love that about him. And he's always really, he's always, he breaks things down a lot better than me. He's really clear and he knows the technologies. And he, yeah. you know, he, the way he, he talks about the fact that government's job is to think about the future, yet governments today don't do that and that no, is their biggest failing the polling cycle don't they? exactly yeah. and what boggles my mind is you know they've all got kids and grandkids I actually don't have kids and it's like why do I care I've got like probably a few more decades left on the planet I'll be yeah, fine why do I care yeah, right why is it that all these politicians with kids and grandkids don't give a shit about their future and to me that's baffling but you know Mike talks about the fact that it would be so simple and I mean I push it further and say if we had had smart governance, we would have done this 20 years ago when we knew this was coming. We would have phased out of fossil fuels. We would have been a world leader in renewables. The economy would have been more robust than it is now. And mm. looking forward, the economy in Australia, which has always been pretty lucky, you know, we've revo- avoided a lot of recessions, kind of coasted through and had a nice quality of life for a lot of people. It's going to hit the wall at some point in the next decade or two when China, India and um when, well, when China and India, who are, who we who we may we are the major exporter of fossil fuels, sorry, we export them our, most of our fossil fuels to them. At some point, and it's mm. coming soon. As much as they're trying to push it and extend it, at some point they are going to have to stop accepting our, importing yeah. our fossil fuels. And what happens to the Australian economy when that happens? And it's yeah. just the writing's on the wall. It's been on the wall for decades. Yet both our politicians and our voters don't seem to be aligned on that. And to me, that's, you know, in 20 years when, you know, the shit hits the fan in Australia, is everyone going to be like, oh, God, we didn't see this coming? And it's like, no, we, we did. We, we, we painted you pictures of it a million times and you just would refuse to accept it. So to me, it's very, very simple. You know, we should be phasing out fossil fuels. We should be focused on building industry around renewables and, you know, we could be exporting energy globally plus through the whole country so it's just it's just really shocking to me how stupid politicians are but you know you can say it's stupid but they're also in the pockets of fossil fuel companies and fossil fuel lobbyists so it runs deep and it's complicated but you know why can't we have good leadership exactly it's so simple right why can't we have good leadership that isn't in the pocket of fossil fuel companies i mean like even even looking at all of the cops that the presence of fossil fuel companies at all of the cops you're like what are you doing here and I, like it just it just blew my mind. But um, you know, on on looking forwards, I think one of my favourite quotes as well was, "I just feel like we're sleepwalking into a <laughs> catastrophe." Yeah, and that just that's... made so much sense because you you know, like we're just drifting through business as normal, straight into the arms of absolute chaos and and climate breakdown. Yeah, that's Tim Flannery. He says that yeah. our, again. Our, our climate scientist, who's my you know, I've I've had a science crush on him for years. He'll die if he hears me say that. <laughs> Um, but he was super important to have in the film because he's been, you know, he's been warning the world about this for 30 years through his writing and talking and teaching and he's such a national hero um, and that this is, it's a strong line. I mean, it could have been what the film is called, Sleepwalking into Catastrophe. It's like mm. we, we know, we've known about this for so long and it's, that's a theme that's echoed through the film. You know, this isn't something that just happened overnight. We've known about it. We've tried to warn successive governments about it and here we are. 
so when you know when we are facing governments that are in the pockets of you know the the media that can't be trusted to say the truth and in fossil fuel companies like how do we combat misinformation like what what's the role do you think that documentaries like yours can have in helping to try and combat that intense flood of misinformation and redirection I mean, they can have a few. They can have a huge impact. I mean, one of the, my, you know, my last film that I made was for Netflix, and this film is for Amazon. And you know, there's there's two sides to you know to to working with global streamers. And obviously, people are very quick to criticise working with multinational companies and about you know how they dictate. What I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of you know arguments on both sides. But one of the things as a filmmaker with these kind of films is you want people to see these films. You want the widest possible audience to see these films. Mm-hmm. And when they go out on on platforms like Amazon and Netflix, you're getting hundreds of millions of people exposed to it potentially. So. I think at the end of the day, you just want people to see these films and to talk about them and you hope that you're not just preaching to the converted. And I always mm. feel like, you know, if you change one person's mind, it's a victory. You know, if you change thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions, then it's, you know, beyond amazing. And if you can have some impact on how people vote or policy change, then that's really valid too. So, mm. you know, I don't like to overstate. You never know how a film's going to go. You know, it's a tough film to watch, but I've definitely worked on films before that have had, effect with policy change and Mm. no matter what you think about climate change you watch this film and you can't argue that this was unprecedented that things have changed even even the most conservative farmers that I spoke to and some of them some of the people who appeared in the film you know they may not agree with the scientists or the climate change but they would agree that something has changed and things are different and that we need Mm. to do things differently so there's definitely a groundswell you know, Australia's facing an election in the next three to six months and I have a horrible feeling Scott Morrison's going to get in again um, And because Australia votes conservatively historically. Oh, right, okay. And, you know, I hope the film has an impact and I hope, I hope also, you know, the young people, you know, who have been such a part of the climate movement in Australia, you know, mm. vote as well with climate change as their number one voice. And, you know, there's a character in the film, Daisy Jeffrey, who's like Australia's Greta Thunberg. Yeah, she's, she was great. one of the... Yeah, she's one of the leaders of the of the student protests in Australia, and I think she's a really important voice in the film as well. I think we are seeing like a very politically active younger generation. I did read somewhere a while ago that it's one of the most kind of politically active younger generations that we've had for a while, and I think that is in part due to the the anxiety and stress and outrage around the climate crisis. So I'm well, I, I hope that. I hope that Australia votes in the direction that we want them to, but I can't say I know a huge amount about your parties. Um, but you did paint a very interesting picture of Scott Morrison, and I think I know which way I would be voting were I an Australian. Yeah, he's a, he's like a cockroach. He just won't he won't go away in right. Australia. I mean, he was the former immigration minister, and he was very involved in Australia. Had like the, the harshest asylum seeker refugee policies in the world, and we were putting refugees or asylum seekers who arrived on boats in these island camps in Papua New Guinea. Oh, my god! And Nauru, and they were dying. And, and I made a film about that as well. So I seem to have a bit of a vendetta with him. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're on just, his list. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really comfortable saying his, really, his contribution to humanity is really truly appalling and he's a terrible person and, you know, people should know about him. He has zero empathy or compassion or understanding and he just is ill-equipped that, you know, he keeps getting voted in and, I hope, I hope desperately that he'll be voted out uh, mm. in the coming election. Mm. Well, you and, mentioned oh, some of your other films. Oh, sorry, do you carry on? 
I was just going to talk a little bit, if that's okay, about Daisy and, and the youth activists oh, yeah, and how, mm. you know, I, I think it's really important to include them in the story. And I think what they're doing on a global scale is so impressive. And I'm not surprised to hear they're the most of politically active generation probably in history. And I think that's wonderful. But I also think it's really important to point out, and Daisy talks about this a little bit in the film. She doesn't complain, but she's because she's just, she's amazing and she's at university now. And but she does say, you know, oh, God, don't talk to me about giving people hope, giving the older generation hope. Because yeah. She says everyone looks at her and says, oh, you give me so much hope. But to me it's like tragedy. It's like it is. our generation looks at them to save the world from the mess we gave them. Our legacy yeah. is impending disaster and we're like oh thanks guys for being so amazing and 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 I just kind of breaks Mm. my heart you know she spent the last couple of years of her high school years like Greta did obsessed about this and concerned and having anxiety and fighting and and being maligned by the government and you know she should be when I think about my last two years of high school I was like studying and having fun like a normal kid should and when you hear a 17 she was 17 at the time when I interviewed her and when she's, you hear a 17-year-old girl very thoughtfully and seriously say, I don't know if I should have children mm. because, of, because of the future of the planet, that's pretty messed up. <laughs> it, abs- it absolutely is. No, I, com- I completely echo your thoughts there. Like when you, when you first look at these really uh, amazing, intelligent and switched on and plugged in young climate activist leaders – you think, oh my goodness, wow! Look at how much they're achieving. Look at how uh, how much change they've managed to, you know, create, and how many, how much of a community they've managed to rally up. And then you take another second, and you're like, they shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't have to be doing that. The burden that is on their shoulders should not be there. No, I know it, it kind of kills me, and it is. I, I really, I really empathise with her when she just said, "Do not get me started talking about all the older generation saying you give me hope." Yeah. It's just like here's the baton. You've now that you've stepped up, we're just very happy to take yeah. you in the backseat role, you know. And I asked her if she was angry at the older generation, and she said she said she's not. And again, I give them a lot of credit. They're more mature than we are, and they're doing more than we are. And you know, and when I say we, I mean my generation. But it's you know, there's something to it. It's very easy to just look at. I don't know. It's easy to look at young people and say, oh, they'll save us. Mm-hmm. But we should also feel guilt and we should feel the burden of responsibility we've put on their young shoulders and it really upsets me. Yeah, it is. It is mad. But no, she, I mean, she was a fantastic addition to the, like you said, she's so eloquent and she's so thoughtful and all of her answers to your questions were so well considered, even though you can see and you can feel that she's young and, you know, she shouldn't have to be like, well, she even says, you know, I should be worrying about my next assignment and my next identity crisis, all the normal (laughs) things that 16 year olds, 17 year olds should be going through. She's really, she's really wonderful. And she kind of reminds you what it's like being a kid. I, I really love. We spend quite a lot of time with her, and I love spending time with her because she's so, she's so smart and so mature. But then she kind of suddenly is like a sixteen-year-old kid again, and that, it's that, it's that sort of juxtaposition. Seeing that is is yeah. really lovely. Like she actually gave me, invigorated me, sort of pepped me up a lot. I think. You okay? So you you kind of mentioned a couple of your other films that you've you've done, and I've noticed a trend. Um, <laughs> In, in your work is that you don't shy away from really hard and difficult topics and you shine a spotlight on things that can sometimes be uncomfortable. So, you, you know, you've looked at the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers, you know, predatory abuse. So my first question was going to be, you know, what was your path into the industry as a filmmaker? But but more, kind of following on what what led you to then work on a project tackling kind of climate change in the environment? Was, was the climate crisis like the next step in that path of uh, like quite difficult, 
need to be handled well, you know, change making topics or was it? Yeah. What what, what were your thoughts on mm. that? How did you get here? I, it's, it's a really tricky question, I think, for me, because I don't think it's been a super logical path in a funny way that I've been doing this for like over 25 years, making documentaries. You know, I, I kind of, I went to a pretty conservative school and, you know, this is pre-internet, I'm old, I'm in like my early 50s. <laughs> and, you know, it was at a time when, I don't know, there wasn't that much, you know, living in Australia, there weren't that many, I, I didn't see a lot of options, I wasn't from a creative background, so getting into filmmaking was sort of, you know, a, a slightly weird way. I mean, I didn't go to film school, I just started making films at university and then started working in like corporate films and very quickly morphed into documentaries where I've really stayed for most of my career. Um, and I think from an early, I don't think I've really realised this until journalists have kind of asked me, you know, why do I tell the stories that I tell? And, you know, I tend to do, you know, a lot of human rights stuff and a lot of political stuff and representing the underdog a lot, I think. Mm. And I, I think it probably comes from my background, but I don't think I realised this ever. I don't think it was intentional. And, you know, my parents came to Australia in the 50s from um they were born in Poland, Jewish, in 1937. So most of my family was killed in the Holocaust, you know, three of my four grandparents. Um, and my parents came to Australia and had a pretty wonderful life. Oh, sorry, you can probably hear that. There's some... Ooh, yeah, that's, that is noisy. That's like a, sorry, that's just like an alert saying there's been a child abducted or something. We get these alerts on our phones oh, in America and it happens all the time. It's horrendous. Oh, my God. And you, I don't think you can turn them off. Sorry. Um well, it's, it's a bit like in the documentary, one of your one of the people you were interviewing that was, you know, that one of the locals whose house was um, at risk of being burnt down. She was saying, you know, my phone was pinging all over the place, you know, saying there were alerts saying that you needed to evacuate and bad exactly. things were going on. So that was that was where my mind jumped. <laughs> no, I, I'm used to that. But yes, just going back to sort of, I guess, my upbringing, you know, like my family had a really great, you know, a pretty good welcome to Australia. It was a very different time you know, there are a lot of opportunities and I had a pretty great childhood and life growing up in Australia, you know, I was afforded freedom and, you know, democracy and and just, you know, a really good environment to grow up with and a great education. From a young age, I knew what had happened to my family and, you know, that three of the four of my grandparents, you know, were, were murdered in the Holocaust and all. I didn't have any cousins because the whole family was killed and I think I just grew up from a very young age being aware that bad things happen to good people. And I sort of, I don't know, I've sort of just thought, well, maybe that sort of seeped into my psyche. And I feel like when I see people being wronged or something, or I don't know, I feel like maybe I need to talk about it. <laughs> That's what I put it down to, but it's just amateur psychology. <laughs> so do you think that plays into like, oh, I mean, well, I was going to say, you know, does that help you distance yourself from, like the pain in the stories that you're telling. But I mean, that's me assuming that you do distance yourself from the pain in the stories you're telling. How do you how do you deal with um, telling a lot of stories that can be kind of triggering and difficult? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, it's something that takes quite a lot of work. And I think when I was younger, I just sort of shrugged it off and was like, no, no, I'm tough, I can deal with it. And I think I got to a point, you know, about probably 10, 15 years ago where it was really affecting me because, mm. you know, when people are in your films and they share your, their stories with you and you spend time with them, I tend to stay in touch with them because I'm not a horrible person and I feel like they've shared their lives with me. I owe them, you know, some form of a relationship, you know, and you have to, you know, obviously put some boundaries on that because you can't help everyone. But I, you know, I want to be respectful and empathetic and kind. And also I like these people and I respect them. So you know, they're, they're, I spent a lot of time in like Afghanistan and in war zones and, you know, you, you get exposed to things and you have traumatic experiences. And I 
I'm friends with a lot of foreign correspondents who do a lot of war zone work, like a lot more mm-hmm. than I do. And I noticed that some of them were okay and some of them were just, you know, living kind of shambolic lives. And I talked to a lot of the ones who were doing well and they said, you need to do some therapy to deal with this. You know, you might have some PTSD, you might have some trauma, you probably have a lot of guilt because it's hard when you leave these places and you go home to your nice life and, you know, you do feel guilt. So Mm. I spent quite a few years, shout out to Brad, who was my amazing therapist in LA, sounds so LA, but I needed to learn. But I know I but and I I I was sort of embarrassed to mention it, but I but I dive into these worlds that are that are really problematic and difficult and often traumatic. So, you know, I I think it's really important to talk about the fact that I think you do need tools to deal with trauma and to deal Mm. with these kind of experiences. And while I haven't had therapy in years now, it really laid down some foundations where I can be incredibly affected by what I'm filming and the people I'm spending times with and what I'm seeing obviously I need to be empathetic and kind and understanding but I can also not let it sort of you know destroy my you know you can't let it destroy you and chip away at your being so it's been a process and it's not the easiest thing to do but I love what I do and I feel really lucky that I get to share these people's stories. I mean that's a great answer I think yeah (laughs) um I have noticed anecdotally that kind of the stigma around going to therapy and and talking through things and like you said giving yourself the toolkit for dealing with whether massive traumatic things or even just day-to-day life the stigma seems to be melting away a little bit and I I I guess in some communities it's actually quite cool to be you know yeah I mean I'd say you know growing up in Australia I really understand sort of the British you know (laughs) mentality (laughs) and so I think I think exactly (laughs) because Australia has some of that being a colony so I think in Australia and Britain you know it's a it's it's less acceptable but I think in America which is like sort of the home of therapy like in LA I think everyone has therapists so I found super LA and it was something I did not do until into my 40s I think Um, and I was pretty hesitant about it but and I was pretty shocked at the effect it had and I think that's just the luck of having a good therapist but also being really open to it and also really needing some help because I was definitely struggling with a Mm. lot of the things I'd been exposed to. Yeah I can I can only imagine in in my little sheltered life over here um, and bef- I mean, before I let you go and get get on with your day, I was quite interested to hear your thoughts on telling more stories and learning, you know, more from the knowledge of Indigenous communities too, because when we're talking about communicating climate change, um, fantastically with the recent COP26, uh, there's been a lot more clamour around, you know, speaking to and involving and increasing representation of Indigenous communities too. So I was, yeah, I was just wondering as a, as a climate change communicator in this instance, or just as a brilliant communicator and documentary uh, creator, whether you had any kind of thoughts on this emerging thread and, and narrative. Yeah, I love this. I was a cop really briefly just for 48 hours because we screened the film there. And so oh, I saw a little bit of, yeah, so I saw it, which was amazing and such an incredible opportunity. But uh, no, I think it's, I mean, look, I don't think we can get enough Indigenous representation in politics, mm. in climate change, in any of that. There is, there's one issue in Australia though that's tricky and, you know, we touch on it in the film with Bruce Pascoe, who's the noted um, author and, and teacher in Australia and quite beloved, that there's there's a there's a it's quite complicated and we sort of didn't go into it too much in the film because it's it's a tricky it would take a whole film to explain but there was a big push after the fires with the governments of putting a lot of money into indigenous communities to train people up to be cultural burning practitioners Um, and that's that's like traditional burning practices and you know australia has a horrendous history 
of its treatment with indi- the Indigenous community. Obviously, when we arrived, we kept, tried to kill them all. Then we tried to breed them out. Um, you know, Australia's, Australia's really got yeah. a pretty dark history with the Indigenous population and it's, it's, it's only recently sort of been semi-acknowledged um, and it's appalling. But historically, um, Indigenous people in Australia would burn and they knew that it's a little like what Greg Mullins was talking about. They knew when the seasons changed, when flowers came out. They knew when it was the right time to what they call cool burning, which is very controlled burning. And firefighters have used that to a degree over years, but not with as many Indigenous tools. And mm. what we've seen in the last years with the increase in heat and dryness is those fires often get out of control and do more damage than good. So a lot of the, a lot, there aren't that many cultural burning practitioners left in Australia because a lot of the history and traditions have been lost. And so there was this big typical Australian government thing to do is like when there's a problem, point to the Indigenous people like the, like the young people and say, oh, they can save us. Here's a whole lot of money. Go, go teach people how to do this, which is fantastic. However, the cult, the climate has changed so much in Australia. This is what the science tells us now. The climate has changed so much in Australia that the fauna and flora has changed a lot in Australia, particularly, right. you know, the plants. And so a lot of the old cultural burning techniques have to either be changed or adapted to the new environment. So teaching them the old ways isn't necessarily going to stop fires. And because everything is so hot and dry now, you know, it's not going to be enough. So it was just one of these ways. It was a really cynical way of the Australian government of sort of saying, oh, let's let the Indigenous people fix our mess and we kind of talk about that at the end of the film and we say you know this is what Australia used to look like this is what it looks like after white man came you know Mm. within decades it was just full of like coal mines and destruction and now you know over a hundred years later we're like oh help us fix it with your great knowledge that we tried to eradicate so I'm really very suspect when the Australian government does that and I don't think it's a solution I think it can't hurt and it can certainly help but it's not going to save us and it's again Mm. a distraction from the bigger issue which is we need to curb our emissions by 2030 drastically (laughs) and that's Mm. the only thing that's going to save us and that's something the Australian government to date has refused to do. Yeah I mean that's that's the headline isn't it that's the overarching goal that's that's everything. Yeah. everything all encompassed um yeah but i think you know we i can't overemphasize how much we have to learn from indigenous communities who yeah. know the land that they have lived on for centuries or thousands of years you know as opposed to us interlopers who come in and destroy everything mm, we do seem to have a habit of that mm-hmm. so listen what's next for you what stories are you kind of working on or hoping or planning to tell oh my gosh I'm in the middle of a bunch of them at the minute but I'm not allowed to talk about them which is really boring it's always so boring I know it's it's always so I know it's always really frustrating because I'm like oh my god I've got so many things I want to talk about but I think you know a lot of you know challenging confronting stories that I think you know the world needs to know about so I'm super excited about all the things I'm working on (laughs) oh brilliant well I hope you'll come back and chat to me about them thanks so much i really appreciate it brilliant thank you well listen uh you can watch burning on amazon prime as of november 26th Six. yeah this friday this friday so this episode will be going out a couple of days after that so anyone that's listening can pop on over to amazon prime to go and watch that and where can yes. people catch uh, more from you and some of your other pieces uh my previous film um bikram yogi guru predator is on netflix globally um, so that's probably enough to keep you busy. And then if not, you can just Google and find stuff online. <laughs> <laughs> that's the perfect answer. Just get a search for it, see what you find. Eva, thank you so much. What a wonderful chat. This has been this has been brilliant. And thanks so much for letting me have a sneak peek at your documentary before it uh, before it launched. I loved it. 
Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, guys. Well, there we go, listeners. I absolutely love that. Eva was one of the nicest people I've chatted to in a long time. She's really cool. And I have to admit, honestly, Burning, the documentary, is, is really good. I would wholeheartedly recommend that you scuttle on over and watch that this evening. Now, before I go, I forgot to do my one good thing because I was so excited to chat to Eva. Um, and mine this week is slightly different to our usual ones. In fact, it's more just an announcement than a one good thing. Because Christmas is looming, I've set up uh, an eco or nature book swap, like a Secret Santa style gift exchange for what for what it's worth, listeners. So essentially, it allows us all to send a book and receive a book for Christmas. But the emphasis being it's it's on you know nature and sustainability topics, and you've got to support your local bookstores, or buy it in a charity shop, or buy it secondhand, or even just send a book from your own bookshelf. Uh, that you think someone else might enjoy. So if you think that that sounds like a little bit of you, the link to get involved is in the episode description. And as always, you can get more from For What It's Earth on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can email us at For What It's Earth pod. And we've always got to say that all of the views expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone. So nothing to do with anyone that we work for or are affiliated with. And with that, we'll see you for another episode of For What It's Earth soon. Mm-hmm.